I'm going to wade into some waters today that are potentially uh, controversial. And uh, I just ask that you hang with me. Um, Don't presume where I'm going to end up. But also, I hope that, you know, I've been with you long enough that you, that you hopefully um, understand my, my, from whence I come. All right. So the year was 2000. I just got ordained. And the pastor says, hey, you know, we're sending teens to World Youth Day. Do you want to go to Rome for World Youth Day? I've never been to Europe. So, of course, you know, being 29, yeah, absolutely. Sign me up. I'd love to go. That was the first and last World Youth Day I've attended. <laughs> it was just, you know, sleeping in a field overnight. I thought, geez, I'm, I'm too old for this. And I was 29. At 51, I ain't going. Um, but uh, but it, was, it was a great experience, and there were many wonderful things. And uh, one of the uh, occasions we had, Brother Priest and I and a group of us, um, we're able to say Mass in the catacombs of St. Sebastian. And when you go, if you've been to Rome, if you go into the catechism, you go down into the catechisms, catacombs, I'm sorry, catechisms, into the catacombs, and you're in these, sometimes it's like really kind of wide open, depending on the excavation, and then and it seems almost like a city, and then there's other places where it's obviously very narrow and confined. And, you know, there's the tour uh, path lit and sectioned off because there's so many catacombs. I mean, you could get lost. And uh, the altar where we had mass was off one of those paths. So we had a guide and he took us. He knew the way. He said, I'll show you where. And we walked and walked. You know, we took, I think we took a right and then a left and then a right and then a left. I mean, it was just, and it was a ways. And then he said, okay, when you're done with Mass, stay here because you'll never find your way back. I'll come back and get you. And thank goodness he came back because we would have died there. There's no way we would have found our way out. It was so deep in and so hidden. And it really became clear to us how those first Catholics lived. The first century, second century during some of those persecutions by the Roman emperors. Um, Now, it would kind of vacillate depending on who was the emperor, but certainly during some of those persecutions, it it was horrible. If you were found out to be a Catholic, there were only Catholics, you know, Catholic Christians at the time. There were no such thing as any other kind. So if you were, if you were a Catholic, you were at risk of death. I mean, death, fed to animals, burned alive, shot with arrows like saints about whatever. I mean, you were seriously, your entire family, the entire group could be killed. And that's what happened over and over. So they had to hide because they were being persecuted. Being persecuted is in our DNA as Catholics. To some degree, we've, we've forgotten that because, you know, after, um, after Christianity becomes the dominant uh, faith in Western civilization and then sort of takes over, then so many of the hallmarks of Europe and America, you know, so many of the establishments, both physically as well as, you know, everything from legally and politically and all the rest, have so much of their influence, particularly in Catholicism. And 
So when you live that way, then to come out of that Christian civilization into what we have now, which is a post-Christian civilization, it can be kind of jarring because we're not used to that kind of oppression. Now, those, uh, those people who maybe remember the early uh, 20th century with, the, uh, with the, the immigration from a lot of Catholic countries would have experienced that. But in our time, it's, you know, it's, it's relatively new. And, you know, historically looking at this kind of persecution is, is, really, is really very interesting, um, so, you know, culturally how it's happening. As, as Christian beliefs are under assault and they're consistently labeled as extreme. I remember growing up, you know, I mean, nobody ever talked about any, any other kind of marriage, right? And so to believe in traditional marriage was never considered, it wasn't even, there was no other option. There was nothing to be considered. So the idea that we've gone from that place to a point of believing in traditional marriage is extreme in 10 years, I mean, that's, that's a big jump. Or, you know, to be labeled as extreme because someone's pro-life. I'm unashamed unashamedly pro-life, I'll never change. You'll never get me to change. Not that you're trying, but nobody will ever get me to change on that. I will die for that, and I'm willing to do so. Hopefully it won't come to that. But to be labeled as extreme because we're pro-life, because we want to protect babies, I mean, that's where we're at. Recently, and uh, I don't know how that's resolved in the Washington legislature, but I was... Uh, I was reading about how the state legislature in Washington voted that uh, Catholic priests need to, I mean, it wasn't specifically, but it, the, the end result of this legislation was that Catholic priests must violate the seal of confession, depending on what's confessed to them. And it was overwhelmingly approved. Now, it had to go to, I think, the Senate, state Senate to be approved. I don't know where that ended up. But the, the local bishop rightly said, no, no, we will not comply. We have rights. We have the right of religion, and our people have a right to the sanctity of the confessional. We will not comply. And to do that, it makes us good citizens, not just good Catholics. Interesting um, to reflect on this then, sort of culturally and politically, because as we know, the, our country was founded on the basis that rights have been given to us by God, and then the government is to protect those rights, not to create necessarily new rights or usurp rights as though those rights come and emanate from the government. They don't. At our founding, we, we have said they come from God. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. And any time that those rights are usurped, and I don't mean uh, personally, like in my own person, I can think whatever I want, and that's freedom. No, that's not freedom. I always have that. I don't need a government to tell me I'm free to think what I want or protect that. That's ridiculous. Even in China, they can think what they want, generally. They just can't say it. So when you get to a point where you can't say it, a sincere belief you're going to lose your job over a religious belief like being pro-life or pro-traditional marriage. You have a new form of totalitarianism. 
And it's happening. It's happening all across Western culture, and it's happening and getting worse and worse in America. What's interesting is looking at this historically. Um, I was born in 1971, and you all know how much I love music. I love rock and roll, and I mean, uh, Elvis and, and the Beatles and Hendrix. I just love all of this stuff. So, but I wasn't there, you know, during the 60s, obviously, and I wasn't, so I, I couldn't participate in that. I, who knows what I would have done if, I, if it were there. I've been told that if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. So I, you know, but, uh, but anyway, so what's interesting though is going back, you know, and, and remember all the prohibitions on Elvis, right? They could only shoot him from the waist up because, you know, and then uh, all of the uh, scandal about, about the Beatles or when Lennon said that we're bigger than Jesus, you know, and then people started burning uh, Beatles albums and, you know, um, all of that stuff. And, and uh, I remember Hendrix talking about, you know, all the squares and um, all of the, because, you know, the people who had authority and power tended to be more conservative. And so they were really kind of ratcheting down a lot of freedoms that people wanted to express. And so you, you of course, you had this sort of revolution that, that occurs because there's too much of an imposition of of their beliefs onto other people, and then that creates a revolutionary sort of thing. Of course, that's what happens. What's fascinating to me is if you look at it, now the people who are doing that same thing are kind of lefties. They're not conservatives. It's actually the other side now that's telling us how to think and telling us how to believe and what's acceptable and what's not, even as Catholics. And we're told that if you don't go along with it, you know, you're an extremist. Really? I'm an extremist because I'm Catholic? Yeah, you're an extremist because you're Catholic. And it becomes a problem then as we look at, um, you know, the political climate, which I'm not going to get into a whole lot, but just in a, in a more macro way to look at, like how many of us are dreading the next election cycle, right? Yeah, you're even raising your hand. You're like, me? You know, all of the arguments with your friends and your family and all the divisiveness and then all the text messages. Who's texting me, you know? And, and uh, no, I'm not going to vote or join some poll, you know, and all the TV ads and everything else and all of this fear, fear. And why do they do it? Well, look, both sides do it because they want you to be afraid. Because if you're afraid of the other side, you're not going to vote for them. So if they can keep us in fear, they can stay in power. That's the whole thing. Oh, no, they really believe what they say. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they really believe what they say. I don't It's just ridiculous. Steven, I'm sorry, I can't even say it with a straight face. No, they, they want to stay in power. And the way they stay in power is to keep you afraid of the other guy. And they both do it. They're both playing in the same system. And what does this create? It creates pressure on us because, you know, that can kind of work up in us, right? It's everywhere. I mean, if you watch one media, you know, if you watch this station, you're getting this kind of fear. And if you watch this station, you're getting that kind of fear. Everybody uses it. You know, if you're, I, I, I watch a lot of YouTube and, and, you know, you get your feed. The algorithms give you what you want. And for the last you know, month, I've been trying to delete all of the Aaron Rodgers feeds, 
Like he's not a Packer anymore. Get him out of there. He's off the team. I don't want to see it, you know? So the computer is learning my new algorithm. Get him out of there. Um, but that's what happens. And so it's all engineered to get us into camps, to get us over here or over here, and then to throw rocks at each other. Because if the, the people in power can keep us there, they've got guaranteed votes. And all they got to do is fight over this small middle. And that's what they do. And it's working. And then we, we complain that government is broken, but we go along with it. We're feeding right into their plan. I'll tell you, if you want to, throw, if you want to completely upset, upset the system, everybody become an independent. They won't know what to do. You might say, well, the primaries. No, it'll, it'll mess the whole thing up. Absolutely. They won't have guaranteed people, right, in their, in, their, in their camp, as it were. But what does it do to us? This is more important. What does it do to us spiritually and, you know, as a community, as a culture? Because what we experience is a lot of in, true intolerance with each other. Because we're driven into this, you know, uh, everybody's sort of driven into these two camps. And then there's all this fear. And that fear leads to anger, right? And it, it can lead to violence. And it, it can lead to violence in horrible, horrible ways. But it can even lead to just violent speech with each other, within families. And we've seen how it's, it's torn each other apart. You know, it's torn families apart. It's not good for us. And so as we continue to move forward as a community, I really would like to lead us to a place where we have real tolerance, not fake tolerance, real tolerance, where people of good faith, people who are Catholic, people who don't agree, can come together and truly share their feelings and their thoughts and perspectives without without all of that fear-mongering, you know, but a real exchange of ideas. Even after the last Mass, it was great. And there's all kinds of people I disagree with, and they're my friends, but I don't hate them. They're not my enemies. I love them. And so if you're a big-time lefty, I still love you. And if you're a Trumpster, I still love you too. I, because it's not about that for me, right? And I probably disagree with just about everybody here on something, just like we all do. And we're way more complex than just right or left. We're, as people, we're very much more complex. Now, here's where you're going to say, well, Father, you're going to talk about Jesus? Yeah, I'll get there. All right. <laughs> so this is how we need to get to. And, and the reason I'm talking about this today is because it's in the scriptures. Okay, so here it is again. Not that it wasn't proclaimed well, but I want to remind you of it. St. Peter, early church, this kind of stuff is going on. Persecution is going on. So this is his instruction. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks for a reason for your hope. But do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. The reason for our hope needs to be Jesus Christ. There is not a single political anyone who is the Savior. 
They don't exist and they ought not to. Doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter what side you're on. As soon as we start to think they're the solution, they're not, I mean, we're off base. The solution is Jesus Christ. The reason for our hope is Jesus Christ. The world is not going to get fixed. And every time, I mentioned this, maybe it was just last week, but every time that mankind has tried to fix the world, it has failed miserably. It always does. Because we are not its savior. Now, we can't fix the world again, but we can create a culture here, a culture that's truly loving and truly gentle. And as we enter into some of these discussions, we're not each other's enemy. Why can't we be a place where there is true tolerance of people who disagree, where we don't have to resort to sort of extremism or uh, you know, name-calling or fear-mongering, but actually an adult, mature conversation about sincerely held beliefs. This should be truly a safe place for us to do that in Jesus Christ. And I think the world needs that. But we can't do that out there, really. I mean, it's hard, but we can do it here. And we can model that for each other. And what a gift that will be to give our children, to teach them that this is actually what it means to live in a pluralistic society, kindness and gentleness, and always remembering that our hope is Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And the reason we keep coming back here, the reason we keep coming back is because we're fed and because our love and our hearts are with Jesus Christ. Please stand.